Let's pray together once again. Great God in heaven, Lord, as we come to this point in our worship service, Father, I just acknowledge that I, I know that I am unworthy and unable to deliver your word. So God, I, I ask, we ask together as a church that you would speak to all of us. Lord, that in, in spite of a foolish preacher, that God, you would speak by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word. Lord, we ask that you would build us up, that you would encourage us, that you would comfort us and strengthen us. But Lord, we also ask that by your word you would cut us, Lord, pierce us, convict us and challenge us, Lord, to live for you. God, we ask all these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to take and turn with me once again to the book of Hebrews. This morning we'll be in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. As we continue on in our study of the book of Hebrews. As you find your place in sacred scripture, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. As we look now at Hebrews chapter 9 beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls 
and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore... Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkles with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have, to suffer, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Folks, by this time when we get into Hebrews chapter 9, we're getting a little bit into the weeds of it. We're getting a little bit into the thick of the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. You have to understand, for many of us, and oftentimes I would try to have conversations with my wife like this, for many of us we just accept things the way that they are. Well, I'm sure that the Lord works it out some way, and there's not much need for argument or defense. I remember being at Sanford in undergraduate, and many of the professors would teach all the various perspectives on the Bible, and they would include very liberal perspectives on the Bible, and they would offer very strong arguments for why the Bible was not perfect and inerrant, and I would have to come home, and I would talk to Jessica and go, I just, I don't know, this argument was actually kind of convincing, and I, I don't know how to make sense of it, and, and then I'd have to go and do my research, and I'd go, does this not bother you? And Jessica would go, nah. Bible's perfect. I got it. I'm like, you, you don't need to like establish the argument and like look at the defense and make sure it's defensible and, and like you could debate with somebody. She's like, no, I believe it. It's there. The Lord told me it's perfect. It's perfect. I got it. 
I'm like, why does this not bother you or keep you up? It reminds me of people like Timothy Keller. He has a very large network of churches that he founded and, and grew up through the Holy Spirit in New York City. And it's called Redeemer Church. He's no longer the, the lead pastor there. But he had to preach in a very specific way that offered a defense for the gospel, that offered a defense for the scriptures. He would dive deep in his sermons and he would offer elegant arguments and discussions because the people needed to hear that in order to be convinced. They were very skeptical people. They were not as accepting and open as my wife is. And so we find that the author of Hebrews is doing a very similar thing. This letter is addressed to doubtful, skeptical Hebrew people. And so they understand the first covenant very well. So he has to make an elegant and tight argument for why the new covenant under Jesus supersedes the old covenant. So that they can understand how Jesus plays into the entire history of the world, the entire history of God's revelation to us as human beings. Everything, as we've talked about before, everything that is established in Leviticus, even as we looked at in our Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago, it is established as a picture of Christ and what Christ would do. Even the tabernacle, even the tent itself, as, as we're told in this passage, is a picture of the more perfect heavenly things. And so it's not that the tent and the tabernacle and Solomon's temple are the end-all, be-all. There's no need to go to the wailing wall in Jerusalem right now because that temple is not the end-all, be-all, where the Dome of the Rock now sits. You don't need a new temple there because that was only a picture of the things that exist in heaven that are perfect. There was a reason that the Levites had to go in day in and day out and replace all of the incense that was burning. They had to replace the bread of the presence and put fresh bread in there. But Jesus says in John that He is the bread from heaven. There is no more need to replace the bread of the presence because Jesus was and is the bread of the presence. There's no need to go to the temple and fill out all of those rituals and those rites over and over again because Jesus has superseded them. And so the argument is, is broken into two distinct sections. Verses 1 through 10 talk about that old earthly place and, and lays out for us what was the Ark of the Covenant. Just in case you didn't know or, or were or reading this and weren't in that Hebrew context, he's laying this out so that we know what the Ark looks like, so that we know what was contained in the Ark. But the ark has long since been gone. The ark is no longer there. We, we, don't, we don't know where it is. I mean, I, I joked before, Indiana Jones seemed to have found it, but I, I don't think that was real life. That's, that's more fiction than history. If you think that there really is an Indiana Jones, I'm very sorry, but there's not one. He did not find the ark. There were no German people whose faces were melted off. It was just a movie, all right? It was not a historical documentation. So we have no way of knowing the details of these things, even from the perspective of the author. He's, he's describing what they would do and what history had been passed down, but he doesn't know from firsthand experience because he's never seen it. And he's saying we can't speak in detail about these things, but those first ten verses describe to us what was happening in the old tent, the old tabernacle, the old temple. 
And the text describes the most holy place. Remember we talked about that was the place where they put the ropes around and then they would pull them out and they had the bells on them. If the bells stopped ringing, that meant that the high priest stopped moving and had fallen over dead and they had to drag him dead back out of the most holy place because that was where God's Holy Spirit was concentrated. And now that same Holy Spirit lives in you and lives in me. That's the point of this passage is that Jesus supersedes the older covenant. But I want to make you guys aware of something. When he gets into this speaking of blood, it is absolutely essential for us to understand why Jesus had to die. You see, it was a common understanding, an ancient Near East understanding that the life of something was in its blood. You can ask Tim about this later. If you have no blood in your body, you will die, okay? It's a, it's a pretty understood fact. You don't necessarily have to reference a medical professional, but I'm sure if you check with him, he'll verify. No blood equals death. So the life of something was in its blood. That's why there were specific uh, regulations and rules and guidelines set up for this is how you slaughter the animal. This is how you collect every bit of the blood. They would hang the bull upside down by its haunches and slit its neck and have a pan underneath it to collect the blood. And that blood is what paid for their sins. Because our debt of sin is a debt that we owe with our life. And because life is in the blood, the only way to cleanse us and pay the debt is with blood. And so they used the blood of goats and bulls and oxes and they, oxen, and then they would use turtle doves and pigeons, and they would use these little birds and animals. And so much so that they still do this today. People that are Jewish, that are Orthodox Jews, that are, that are more classical, traditional Jews, they will still, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the one day where the offering is to be made for the people, since there is no temple, they do this amongst their families. I was very privileged to be able to go to Israel with my dad and his brother and his sister. So my dad and my aunt and my uncle, the, the four of us, went to Israel. My, my, father, my uncle lost part of his leg um, due to a military accident, and he said, Nathan, I will pay your way to go to Israel if you will help me see all the sights. And I was a senior in high school. I went, let me think about it. Okay, sounds good. And my dad said, you're not going to Israel. That's crazy. You're going to get killed over there. And, he, and my mom said, you are definitely not going to Israel. Wayne, if he goes, you've got to go with him. And my dad went, uh, maybe we should go. I, that sounds like a good idea. And then my Aunt Mitzi said, well, you're not leaving me behind. So we go over there, and we have a very Jewish tour guide. This is in 2006. And he was a great man. His name was Danny. And we asked him. Eventually, as we got to know him throughout our 10 days there, finally my dad said, Danny, what, what do you guys do on Yom Kippur since... There is no temple. There's nobody to go in to the most holy place for you guys and and make the offering and and pour the blood. What do you do? And Danny said, well, I take a chicken and I collect the blood and I kill the chicken. And I take it and I sprinkle it on myself. And then I get around my family and I just cover my family for their sins and sprinkle them with the blood of the chicken on Yom Kippur. Everybody has to be covered if you're not covered, then you don't end up getting covered for your sins, and you're still, man, it's going to take a while. Uh, we'll just stick to them. Y'all are covered for y'all's sins. Thank you so much. You are now cleansed for another year. It's good. Well, we'll get the Castillos, too. Make sure. We want them to be sinless. You too, baby. Love you. So, 
literally. We're, we're reading Hebrews and we're, you might think, oh, this is ancient Jewish stuff. This is old. Nobody does this anymore. They might not use a goat. They might not use the official animal. But a man, by testimony of his own mouth, who was our tour guide, who looked at us and said, no, no, you don't understand. We still have to make a sacrifice. If there is not blood, we are not covered. And they will sprinkle blood in their households. The head of the household covers himself, and then the rest of the family, he sprinkles blood on y'all. I thought about using real blood, but I felt like y'all might not be quite as okay with that as the water. But every year, guys, this is an old covenant that, that people don't realize has passed away. It was a picture of what is now enacted, of what we now have. That was the old way, and now Jesus has come and fulfilled the picture of what that was. But there are still people all over this world that when Yom Kippur comes around, when the Day of Atonement comes around, they purchase an animal, they kill the animal, they collect the blood in some sort of a cup, and they may use a branch, they may use their fingers, they sprinkle themselves, and they sprinkle their families. Because even though Jewish people may disagree with us on a lot of things, they understand that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You see, because we all stand before God guilty. That's the biggest problem. You know, I think we, we sometimes get these things conflated. There's a difference between guilt and guiltiness and shame. You can be guilty and not feel guilty. You understand what I mean? You can stand before a judge and a judge say, Greg, you're guilty. And Greg's like, well, I mean, the judge said I'm guilty, but I don't really feel guilty. That's where shame comes into play. When someone is declared as guilty, there is normally a feeling of shame that goes along with that. But we in this world have gotten to such a point that even though we stand before God guilty, oftentimes we have no shame about our guilty standing before the Lord. We don't understand or comprehend that our blood is owed to pay for our sin. It's the way the world was set up by a holy and just and righteous God that our blood is demanded, our life is demanded, and we stand before an innocent, fair God who is the most right judge and should condemn us for all time. And even though we are guilty, we feel no shame. We go about life. There are unintentional sins, as the passage says, and then there's intentional sins. You and I, we are so sinful that sometimes we know what the sin is and we commit it anyway. I, I know that I'm not supposed to lie. I know that I'm not supposed to gossip. I know that I'm not supposed to look at that man or that woman in that way. I know I'm not supposed to covet what my neighbor has, but have you seen their new truck? Have you seen the house that they live in? We know what these things are and we step into them anyway without any caution or care to the guilt that it brings upon us. Not a feeling of guilt or a feeling of shame, but a judgment from a just and righteous judge who looks and says, you are guilty of this crime. No matter how you feel on the inside, no matter how I feel about our sins, intentional or unintentional, there is a judgment that has been passed and we are guilty. And the only way that we can stand before the Lord and escape the penalty of this judgment 
The sentence that comes with this. The judgment has been cast down. You should spend the rest of your life and eternity separated from God in a place of torment known as hell. That's the sentence that we deserve after the judgment has been cast. But what happens is someone else interposes blood for us. And the picture of Jesus doing that was seen in the Levitical rites, in the Levitical priesthood. But now that's past. And we can be covered, not in the blood of lambs or goats, but in the blood of Jesus, who gave His own blood for us. It's absolutely incredible. Look at how the Scripture says this to us in the book of Micah. You see, God is the one who has an indictment against us. God is the one who has pronounced judgment over us. And in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. The Lord is going to use the mountains to plead His case against us. He will speak to creation and tell us what the case is against us. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people. And He will contend with Israel. Now I know that it says Israel in reference to the country. But it's also a reference to you and me in this passage. It's a reference to those who are true believers and part of the universal church throughout all time and through all countries. The Lord has an indictment against His people, the church. And then... Flip over a few pages. Maybe one page. Might even be on the same page. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case pleads my cause, and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out into the light. I shall look upon His vindication. Listen, I know it says in verse 9, until He pleads my cause, or until He pleads my case. The He there can only refer to the Lord. Do you you understand what's happening in a courtroom here? He sits as the judge. He sits as the prosecuting attorney. And in chapter 6, he says that he stands up and the jury that is lined up over here is the foundations of creation. That the mountains and the trees and all of nature are witness to the case that God has against us, humanity, who sit over here accused and indicted. And who will stand and argue for us? Who will make the payment for us so that we can escape the judgment that is about to come down against us? The Lord sits there as the judge. The Lord is there as the prosecuting attorney. And then we sit and wait until the Lord also serves as our defense attorney. And He stands up, Jesus, the Son, and pleads our cause And defends us against the prosecuting attorney. And looks to the judge and says, they're not guilty. I've paid. They're not guilty. My blood covers them. Elsewhere in Scripture, 
In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells a parable that may not seem like it ties in with what's going on in Hebrews 9, but I promise this and Micah tie perfectly together with Hebrews 9. Jesus tells this parable beginning in Matthew 22, verse 1, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, both bad and good. But the king came in to look at the guests. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, pretty rough for that guy, right? I mean, you said go get the bad people and the good people, right? I mean, you, you said bring everybody from the highways and the byways, the rich and the poor and the, and the famous and the infamous. You said bring them all, Jesus. So I did. And this dude is not dressed right, and so he gets thrown out into the outer darkness. See, it would have made perfect sense to Jesus' audience, though, because they understood that when you throw a wedding feast, when you throw a wedding banquet, you provide the wedding garments. So it's like a coat check. Everybody that walks in stops by and checks and gets their coat, puts on their banquet garment, and goes into the banquet. So what Jesus is implying here is that the one person who was not dressed in the wedding garb, who did not have the garment on, the correct wedding garment, must have snuck in and slipped by somehow. He was not covered in the appropriate robes. It will be the same way when we stand before the judge. Because being covered in the blood of Jesus is like being covered in His righteousness. I'm not right. I'm guilty. I stand before a God as a sinner who deserves to go to hell. But Jesus, in His great love, in His infinite mercy, He said, look, Nathan, that purple just will not do. That is not right for this wedding. But here, here is my righteousness. Take it as a coat and put it on and wear it and cover up all of that guilt and all of that sin and all of that stain. This is my blood that makes you pure and innocent. And now you have the appropriate garments. Come and enjoy the wedding feast. Jesus is the one who makes the argument for us. He's the one who takes the punishment in our place. He's the one whose very blood, as Hebrews 9 says, was sacrificed to cover us and cleanse us. 
And I always find it ironic that blood is one of the hardest stains to get out of any clothing or any garment. I, there's probably people in here right now that are like laundry super, superheroes, and they are going, oh, well, preacher, let me just tell you, if you just get this little thing right here, you can get blood out just like that. But in my experience, when I bleed on something, it becomes a work shirt or a work pair of pants. I don't even bother with it. I ain't going to try and clean it. And yet, it is the blood of Jesus that washes us by staining us. I just love the interesting dichotomy that the Lord has set up by using what is most effective to stain, to clean. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But folks, there's also very, very good news. Because in Romans chapter 8, we read in verse 1 through 4, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life, the old covenant was broken because the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done in Jesus what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Hebrews chapter 9 is detailing for us what happens in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. What happens in Micah chapter 6 and 7. What happens in Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 22. That if you and I will believe that God sent His one and only Son, that we would not perish, but have everlasting life. We sang it today. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And so this morning, I just want to remind you that Jesus bought you with His blood. That your blood is not sufficient but His blood was all sufficient. And even though we stand condemned, there is no condemnation because of Christ. But the only way, the only way to be declared innocent instead of guilty, to be free from shame and free from the punishment and free from the sentencing, is to believe in Jesus, accept His blood covering over you. If you have not done that, then you stand condemned already. I beg of you this morning, believe in Jesus and what He has done for you in His blood that will cover you. Believe in Him today. Trust Him with your salvation. Trust that He frees us from the penalty and the power of sin. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You made a way when there was no way. That You loved us when we were unlovable. 
that when the blood of bulls and goats and animals wouldn't suffice, you shed your own blood. But Lord, you have redeemed us, that you have freed us from the penalty of sin. But God, this only takes no, Father, when we trust in you, when we give our lives over to you. Not just saying a simple prayer, Father, but giving you control of our lives, trusting in you and you alone for salvation, that you would cover us in that wedding garment, in the righteousness of Christ. Father, if there's anyone here who has not done that this morning, I pray that you would move on their heart, that you would inspire them to stand in a moment and come down this aisle and beg to meet you face to face. Lord, maybe there are some of us who, even though we are sinful, we are feeling no guilt and no shame for our sin. God, you tell us in 1 John 1, 9 that if we will confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive them. Lord, I ask that you would move among us and cause us, Lord, to come to the altar and to your throne and ask once again to be covered in your righteousness, Lord, to be cleansed, Father, to be forgiven for all the ways that we fail. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in this moment that we would respond in obedience. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit.